Is there every member of the committee who wishes to vote voted? The clerk will report. Mr. Chairman, there are 23 ayes and 17 noes. The article is agreed to. The resolution is amended as ordered reported favorably to the House. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal issues of the day. And it's as important and historic a day as they come. A few hours ago, the House Judiciary Committee voted out two articles of impeachment accusing President Donald Trump of abuse of power and contempt of Congress, urging his removal from office and sending the articles to the House floor where it's widely anticipated they will pass, making Trump the third president ever impeached. The implications of this seismic event for our political system, the 2020 election, Trump himself, the main congressional actors like Schiff and McConnell, and constitutional rule are immense and far from clear. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. We are going to jump right into it with a fantastic group of expert commentators who are as well suited as anyone I know to assess what will emerge from this historic development. They are all returning contributors well known to listeners of this podcast. I'll just give their top line credentials, which don't begin to capture their deep experience and sophistication with the political world of Washington, D.C. First, Natasha Bertrand, the national security correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much, Natasha, for rejoining Talking Feds. Thank you. Second, Ron Klain, general counsel at Revolution LLC, but former chief of staff to Vice Presidents Biden and Gore and to Attorney General Reno. Welcome back, Ron. Thanks for having me. And Matt Miller, a partner at Novo, an MSNBC contributor and a former director of public affairs at DOJ. So, look, let's just jump right in. We have, on the one hand, this debate of what seems to be as consequential presidential misconduct as the country has ever experienced. And yet there's a flatness to it because it seems like the Republicans are remaining in lockstep and the likely outcome in the House as a whole, as it was in committee, is at least the Republicans will 100 percent stay in line. But let me start there. You know, given the overwhelming proof and the gravity of the offenses, how have the Republicans been able to impose such total 100 percent discipline? Are there no Republicans at all, either who think about uh, country over party or whose political prospects might be aided by coming out against Trump? Why have they been able to be so completely uh, united here? Well, they, they just don't seem to think that this is impeachable. I mean, they genuinely even the moderate Republicans, even folks like Will Hurd, who is retiring and who really has nothing to lose, has told the Democrats that, you know, this call wasn't necessarily perfect, but we don't believe that it is impeachable conduct. And I think part of the reason for that that they're putting forward is that they say that no crime was committed. Now, of course, a crime is not necessary for a conduct to be impeachable, but that is the line that they've been sticking to. And Mitch McConnell has been able to maintain a large degree of discipline in the Senate as well. Um, Democrats have remained hopeful that they might be able to 
peel away five to ten Republican senators. Right. That was as of this morning. That was the 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 count. But it it seems unlikely that there's even going to be a trial at this point. Mitch McConnell has basically floated just acquitting him and having this over and done with as soon as they possibly can. Yeah. So and we'll get we'll get to that. But so Ron and Matt, do you buy this? It's a kind of herd is you know as Natasha says, he has nothing to lose really. But do you buy that there's just in good faith, the party overall just doesn't think this is uh, impeachable or or doesn't genuinely think it has been proven? You know, what the hell? My view is that, uh, you know, you know, uh, the mafia is a pretty disciplined organization, too. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of fear of Donald Trump and whether the members are staying and are feared of being primaried or they're leaving and they want to do business in Washington and they know that uh, access to Trump is the key to doing business uh, for them. Um, you know, I think they are, uh, you know, tr- Trump is running a criminal White House. And what you are saying is uh, the consequence of that. And it's a very effective crime ring. Uh, and I think that's what's creating the discipline here among his uh, followers. And, uh, you know, ultimately that will be put to a political test because these people will cast the vote and the ones that are staying We'll face the voters and we'll see where it all sorts out. Matt, but a hundred percent, you know, is there is the calculation really the same for for all the Republicans? Obviously, it looks like there's there'll be a few defections among the the Dems. Is what Ron says? Are they so fearsome? You know, they some have to calculate he'll lose in twenty twenty, and you know, voters will turn against him. Why is there not a single Republican who seems at least on the fence? So I I think it's a few things. I think, first of all, Ron is absolutely right in in his analysis. I think in addition to that, it's hard to to understand if you don't live inside the Fox kind of bubble, um, what the people that live inside it, how how they view the world and the distorted lens through which they view the world. And I think some of that is a distortion of convenience. They want to view that world that way. And some some of it, I think, is just people get completely brainwashed. And I don't mean that to take away agency from them. They're still responsible for their actions. But I think for the most part, look, the Republican Party has just decided, and this was happening before Trump. This happened really during the, it was happening during the Obama administration and everything got accelerated by Trump. Uh, They have just decided that, that, you know, the acquisition and maintenance of power is the kind of reason that they exist as a party. And they are, they're not willing to, to kind of let anything come in the way of that. And that includes, I think, overlooking some pretty obviously uh, impeachable uh, behavior by the president. Yeah, well, see, I thought you were going to say when you talked about the Fox world that they live in a world where they genuinely believe either he didn't do it or it's not impeachable. But you tacked away to to saying, you know, they're completely worried about political power. And that seems not so crazy. But is there some kind of you know, uh, miscalculation going on? Or do you think it's actually, if that's your standpoint, there there, there ain't a one who uh, it would be, you know, wise to get out of uh, formation? Well, I, I would say in the, in the pure political calculation, you have to remember that most of the Republicans who were in marginal districts got wiped out in the last midterm. So the Republicans that are Good left point, in the yeah. House, for the most part, they're not in marginal seats. There are still some who, who are vulnerable and who the, who, um, Democrats are going to take a run at next time. Uh, but for the most part, those members who were kind of in marginal seats who you think might be more worried about playing to the middle have already lost their seats. 
And back to you, Ron and Natasha. Okay, effective criminal organization. So, what is the equivalent of getting kneecapped or you know shot in the uh, in the in the back in the Italian restaurant? I so somebody steps out and casts the vote. What would they be looking at from a vindictive White House? Yeah, no, it, that's a start. I think uh, you know, being a primary, being uh, losing their seat for those who want to stay. Uh, as we've seen with some Republicans who did take on Trump early on. I mean, you know, Matt made a good point, which is that, you know, what's changed over the course of the three years of the Trump presidency is a purge in the Republican Party. There are a lot fewer Republicans. Those that opposed Trump uh, resigned or were defeated uh, or have left the party. Right. I mean, we turn on our TVs every day and see. Yeah. Three years ago was like Paul Ryan in ancient history. Right. Uh, and so, and so, what's left? I mean, there there is a the Venn diagram of Republicans who remain and Trump supporters is a pretty two very much overlapping circles, and um, and so it's not a surprise that the shrunk down Republican Party that remains is a Trump Republican Party because if you stayed in it, that's where you are. And you know, maybe Mitt Romney's an exception to that, and maybe one or two others are, but by and large, the remainers are Trump people. And I think a really good example of that is Elise Stefanik, who was a moderate, but during this entire impeachment process has really come to be one of the the president's chief defenders, um, especially in the House Intel Committee. And she was seen as someone who was you know, very wary of discussing Trump, certainly wouldn't defend him, never actually mentioned him by name when she was asked whether or not she would support him for re-election. And recently it's it's become clear that she sees her path to re-election and staying in her seat as doubling down, tripling down because of what she sees from her constituents, which which is doubling down on their part of increased support for Trump. So she's representative, I think, of the phenomenon of if you're a Republican now in this party, you really have to be all in behind this president. It, it, boy, it's so stunning. I was um, I had a, I was reading something uh, the other day that had to do with Lindsey Graham and his uh, cooperation with Obama on certain issues. And you see it's, you see him now. I mean, all in doesn't simply mean supporting him, doesn't simply mean even full throating supporting him. It seems to mean for many like taking on this whole persona of, you know, not just Trump, but Trumpism, the whole kind of nastiness and sneering and, and outrage and the like. Well, does this suggest, given that our shrunken, you know, cadre of Republicans, that whatever it means for their national fortunes, that Trump and Trumpism are the sort of future of the Republican Party going forward, even if he's out in 2020, that it's the dominant strain of Republicans for, you know, years to come? Look, I, I think so. And I would say kind of Trumpism and McConnellism, and they're, they're two different things uh, to, to some extent. But but I mean, Trumpism in terms of populist anti-immigration, I think that's here to stay in, in the Republican Party. And then the other side of Trumpism, which is just a complete trampling of norms uh, and, and being absolutely shameless about it, that's that I would also call that McConnellism. I mean, McConnell set the, the standard for that when Obama was president, I think most famously um, by filibustering the, or not filibustering, not even bringing it up for consideration 
the, a Supreme Court seat and and is you know setting that standard again by kind of already declaring he's going to work with the White House on the trial and they'll they'll have the exact same agenda. I, I think that is where the Republican Party is going to be going forward. Um, they are going to take whatever extreme position they want, um, declare that white is black and the sun rises in the west and the sky is red, and, and they have something that that is an enormous political advantage in American politics, probably in, in politics in any democracy, which is a a media ecosystem that will just echo everything they say. And there's not there's no equivalent of that on the left, and that allows them to kind of maintain their ranks even when they're taking what ought to be pretty indefensible positions. Trump is a unique figure. I agree absolutely with Matt that many of these tendencies were there in the Republican Party before Trump showed up, but there's no question that he has electrified it and galvanized it in a way that none of his predecessors did, and it's just not clear to me that there's a Trump afterwards. So I don't think we're, we're um, you know, going back to some kind of good old days when this is over. But I, but I do think that Trump is unique, and the removal of Trump, if he's defeated in 2020, will be a bit of a reset here. And um, you know, we'll just have to see. Although Matt did make this great point about you know McConnell, you can you can actually see Trump as the continuation of this, you know, what to me or other kind of maybe pointy-headed type seems the most alarming aspect of Trump rule, which is the complete indifference to and trampling of constitutional norms. So so it's true. It does seem to be a kind of one two punch Trump's, you know, Trump has it in almost this like um, sociopathic way and McConnell in a, in a much more malign and Machiavellian way. But it really does seem to be the case that there is just zero concern for the warping of the constitutional norms, which suggests, among other things, that it might take a generation or more or won't happen even for the that kind of damage, which is profound, to be repaired. And I think that's also something that the Democrats are, are afraid of in terms of uh, the impeachment process, because it, it doesn't seem like, well, they're, what they're afraid of is that Trump will not be deterred at all by an impeachment vote. And that's why they have felt like they really have no choice, but this is the only way to hold him accountable. And even now they're saying this is a crime in progress. He might not be deterred by this. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans are increasingly enabling him as they have been for the last two, three years. So what we're seeing now is that not even impeachment has been able to restore some of the normalcy that we've seen in politics. You know, there there's just no remedy to this. And that's why the Democrats have the sense of urgency now saying, if we don't do something now, then clearly come 2020 in the election, you know, what is he going to do if he hasn't been held accountable? Yeah. So first, and what, so, and what about this? I mean, is this just like a quaint view on, on my part or, or other people who live on the coast that that it is the is the whole appeal that the democrats are forced to to constitutional norms and the founders and the four professors basically just a political loser uh look i don't think so i mean i I do think um you know in in for it's interesting just to go back roll the clock back to a year ago and um 
Trump ran around the country in November, October, November of 2018 and told people that if Democrats took control of the House of Representatives, he would be impeached. That was his campaign pitch uh, in 2018. And uh, voters listened to that and gave Democrats control of the House of Representatives. And so, you know, it's not, it's not clear to me that his argument, in fact, I think it's clear to me his argument is not the winning argument in American politics, but it does claim substantial support. It does claim solid support. It does claim you know, a solid grip on 25 or 30 percent of the American people. And given gerrymandering and the structure of our politics, the structure of our electoral system, you know, you know 40 percent of the House of Representatives or 45 percent of the House of Representatives, whatever it winds up being. Well, I mean, do you what are they even making a constitutional argument? I, you know, I was really impressed with uh, Jayapal's question at the um, in the markup saying, look, Republicans, forget about Trump. Here's this conduct. Do you see it as impeachable? And they wouldn't even you know, argue about it. Are they, I, I don't even hear them making a constitutional argument. I mean, they, they appeal to the political standing of things and how, you know, the um, support for Trump doesn't hasn't seemed to have diminished much over the course of the last several weeks. But are they are they now a sort of anti or just, uh, you know, a, a, a non-constitutional party? Uh, you know, to some extent, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think, look, I, that was a smart question. And if I, I think the hardest question for Republicans in politics right now, the one you see them run from all the time is, is, you know, Cory Gardner is the best example. He's, he's run from reporters right. several times asked, right. just this, do, do you believe it's okay for a president to ask a foreign uh, a power to intervene in our election or to, to investigate your political opponent? And they, they never want to answer that question in the abstract because they know how damning it is. And I, I think that does show to Ron's point that the, this argument is actually a loser for Trump. And I think the idea that he and um, kind of, you know, his surrogates on the Republican side have been spinning that this is a political winner for him is fanciful. Uh, I think being impeached is 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 not a winner for him. And then the, the underlying conduct that this is exposed um, is not a winner for him. And I think that's why. Look, polls are, you know, polls don't show probably majority support, most polls, but there's a plurality that supports his impeachment and, and removal from office. And, uh, you know, look, that doesn't get you Republican votes in the House, but I think it's possible it gets you one or two or three votes in the Senate where people have to appeal to a yeah. statewide constituency rather than a narrow district. I think it's also believable when Nancy Pelosi and and the top Democrats say this isn't political, this isn't about politics, this is something that we had to do because Nancy Pelosi is ultimately this isn't a, a you know a something that the the entire caucus has to be on or else they'll be in deep trouble with the Democratic Party. This is something where Nancy Pelosi will tell vulnerable Democrats, "Look, do what you need to do to protect your district, you know, because she wants to keep the Democratic majority. But she knows that the, the Democratic caucus as a whole really can't ignore this, right? Because it's a constitutional thing. So for them to just let Trump off the hook here, and out of fear, perhaps of having this be a political loser, would really, in their minds, kind of shirk their responsibilities. And that's why they're not really running ads. You know, the Republicans have run a ton of ads on impeachment. The Democrats have barely run any because they don't want to be seen as inserting themselves into a political fight here. They want to kind of just get this over and done with and wash their hands of the matter, get it through the Senate and 
on in their opinion, have their conscience kind of be clean, having done their job while having the Senate kind of have to reckon with the decisions they make. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And uh, I mean, here's another way to look at it, which is that the Republicans are not anti-constitutional and it's not Trump rule forever, but it's all the sort of artifact of this weird knife's edge of uh, you know, a minority, but a substantial minority that gives him his advantage now or rule now, but it and and which he enforces with the kind of mafia discipline that Ron mentions. But that you know, if uh, when if there's just a little bit of rejiggering of the of the political dynamic, maybe things loosen up uh, quite a bit. Here's one way to think about it that you hear. Uh, which is, you know, if there were a secret ballot, you've, you've heard this argument, uh, if there were a secret ballot in this in the Senate, 15 or so senators would go against him and uh, a number of House representatives would. Do, first, do you buy that as kind of a, a factual matter? Let me stick with you on this, Natasha, because, you know, you, you're reporting it sort of every day. Do you think there's just a number of reluctant Rs who are forced to it, but in, if they really could vote their conscience, would would um, support the impeachment and, and removal? I do. And that's just because of the conversations that we as reporters are having with, with them every day. I mean, it's really not a lie when reporters go on air and say, look, privately, Republicans say this, even though publicly they're defending the president. Privately, they say, it's really hard for us to support this guy. It's getting harder and harder, even though publicly they continue to show that face and continue to put on a front of defending every policy that the president puts forward, every statement, every um, kind of outrageous remark. So if there weren't a public facing side of this, then it's probably more than possible that we would see the president removed from office. There would be enough Republican senators that would get behind this saying this is unacceptable conduct because you have to imagine also, I mean, what if, you know, I always come back to the Obama question. What if President Obama were doing this? How would they feel then? Mm. I mean, if, if this was a blind vote, the conduct I think would be extremely difficult for them to defend. But then on the other hand, you would have no real accountability um, if there were no faces to the votes. And that's, of course, what Congress is about. So it's a it's a thought experiment, but it's a it's a right. No, I agree. I I don't you know, some people it's a it's a kind of, you know, fanciful notion that some Dems have. But what but what about Matt and Ron? Do you do you buy that, that it's just they would dearly love to uh, stick the knife in, but they know they they can't, uh, uh, you know, do it, do it publicly? I don't completely buy that. I think a lot of the Republican senators have no use for Trump uh, as a person. They have no use for him because of the political problems he creates for them sometimes, you know, things that he does that they're forced to, to defend. Well, not forced to defend, but that they choose to defend. But honestly, I think for the most part, the Republican Party is actually pretty comfortable with Trump. They, they like the fact that, that he won mm-hmm. and he li- they like the fact that he has shown them kind of a path forward through attacking immigrants and kind of I think he's defined the Republican Party and the the thing you hear about all the time that Republicans aren't happy with him. I I just don't buy that at all. Now, that said, I I do think there is a real risk for a lot of them in this uh, vote in the Senate. They, you know, look, I think it's very hard for any Republican senator to break with him because of how loyal the Republican base has been and continues to be. And and they um, risk uh, uh, raising the ire of their own voters. But if you are in a swing state or a blue state and you vote to uh, acquit Trump based on this set of facts, 
and then he does something similar between now and November, you own that conduct because you saw what he's done. You voted to overlook it. And I think you can make a pretty good argument that every Republican senator that votes to let him go is responsible for any further abuses of power. And if you want to take the gamble that Trump's not going to abuse, you know, abuse his power between now and November to win re-election, I, I would be happy to take the opposite side of that bet. I guess, although, of course, it has to be uh, outed. You know, it's just it's just a lucky happenstance in some ways that, that you had the whistleblower come forward. Well, maybe not. Maybe it comes out anyway. Ron, what you know, so what's your what's your thought about the, you know, the secret ballot thought um, experiment and whether they, you know, put up with them or actually embrace him, as Matt suggests? So I think it's complicated. I think if it was literally a secret ballot, I don't think anything would change because I don't think any of these people believe it would really be secret. <laughs> right. So, so, so I think the, the, the mechanism of a secret ballot doesn't change anything. If you're asking me, like, if they could just kind of like brainwave their vote, you know, I think uh, I agree with what's been said so far. And I think it's two sides of the same coin. I think the Republicans find Trump useful by and large. I think they may well find him distasteful in many respects. And they wish he would put down his goddamn phone and stop tweeting you know, and so I think if they could like cast a vote to impeach him as a sign of like disapproval, but then not have him be removed, I think for many of them that's kind of where they are, which is they'd love to come up and slap him upside the head and tell him to stop a lot of this the craziness. But by and large, you know, he has delivered for them in the sense that he won the White House, he's hung on to the Senate. He's gotten them a bunch of judges. They've taken over the jury. They've cut taxes for rich people. And that's kind of the list that like the the only things they (laughs) really care about, right? You know, like get some judges, get some tax cuts, get power. And and so I think by, by and large, he's delivered for them. Yeah, but you have to think of what the alternative would be, which would be Pence, which is basically Trump without the crazy tweeting and without the being unorthodox. And so I think if, you know, I think that, Trump really annoys them. (laughs) They would rather not have to deal with him at all, frankly. They would rather not have to deal – unless you're Lindsey Graham who loves to golf with him, unless you're Rand Paul who advises him on foreign policy. They don't like dealing with him. And so I think if the choice were between him and Pence, who's more predictable, who you know is more – it has more experience, whatever that means, in, in government, and can negotiate with them in a more, uh, you know, less tumultuous way. I, I think they would take that any day. Well, if I could, I mean, I, I kind of agree and kind of disagree. That is, I think, at one level, you're absolutely right that they they like Pence more than Trump. Uh, they like dealing with him more than like dealing with Trump. They find him more reliable than Trump. All those things you said. But in the end, this is about power. And I think many of them doubt that Pence could win. He was a failed governor who was about to uh, not be able to get reelected in a pretty Republican state of Indiana. And, you know, you know I go back to what Matt said at the beginning. It is about power. And Trump represents power to them. And I think I actually with you that if, if the question is, who would you rather have a beer with? Who would you rather go to dinner with? The Republicans in the Senate like Mike Pence more than Donald Trump. But who do they want to bet their political lives on? Uh, you know, uh, I think they have more confidence in Trump to be able to deliver for them. That's true. By the way, this, so this is a that's a short aside, but you went what you said just uh, 
reminded me of it. Matt and Ron have both been chiefs of staff or to, to principals. Is it really true, do you think, that he everything he tweets, he just tweets himself? And is it really true he just uses his cell phone all the time, knowing or not whatever that the that any government can can look at. Is there nobody who has the power within government, within the White House, to try to discipline him? Do you do you think they it's completely unmediated? Of course, it's true. Uh, it's look, true. I think he just, I, yeah, he just of gets it's true. up and starts tweeting. I, look, he has a he has an A Dan Scavino who sometimes tweets for him, and I think but I think a lot of times it's him. And I, I think no one is able to constrain him because he has actively set up a White House um, th- that is geared to 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 allow him to reject any constraints. I mean, this story that we read recently about how you know when he found out that that John Kelly, when he was chief of staff, was tracking his phone calls and making a log of his phone calls, that's when he switched back to using his cell phone because he doesn't want to know what people he doesn't want people inside the White House to know what he's doing. I think we're finding out <laughs> in some circumstances why. I, I think all those stories are absolutely true. Amazing. All right, let's look. Let's let's uh, fast forward just a little bit. So, what's it gonna? What's it look like? You know, a vote in the full house. Will it be not pro forma, but you know, without much process and rehearsal of evidence and testimony? How long will it take? What's it gonna actually, um, you know, look and feel like? Well, I, I'll start. I mean, I think that. Uh, I don't. If what people are looking for are suspense, I don't think there'll be much suspense. Right. But I do think it is historic. I mean, I don't think you can get away from the fact that we've been a country for a very long time, and we've only done this on the House floor three times. And and I think it will. I think the Democratic members at least will approach it with solemnity and purpose. I think the Republicans, their strategy fundamentally is not to defend Trump; it's to discredit the process. Right. You know, when when someone says in politics, this whole thing is a circus, usually they're talking about the other side. The Republicans are so determined to make this a circus. They are renting their own clown suits and dressing up (laughs) and dancing around. That is their strategy. And so I think that's what we we, we should see. We will see the Democrats give serious speeches about the law and the facts and the Constitution. And we're going to see the Republicans do everything they can to make the thing seem like a joke, a hoax. Uh, you know, a, a process out of control, a circus, you know, uh, 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 you know, a, a really disastrous thing. That's I think that's the big thing you're going to see next week. And so how long what what kind of debate? How how long can anybody talk who sort of determines what it feels like? Is it a half day process, a two day process? Any do you have a sense of that from from the past? So they've announced that that the vote's going to be on Wednesday, and they've got something else they're taking up on Tuesday. So I I assume, though, they haven't made that clear yet, that it will only be one day of debate, though maybe they start the debate on Tuesday and and it carries over. But typically in something like this, you'll have – you know, each side will be given, say, you know, five hours of time or six hours of time. And whoever from their side wants to get time to speak will, will be able to do that. And I would guess at the end of that process, you will see a statement kind of closing arguments from Schiff and Pelosi and Nadler that will look a lot like the arguments that you will see kick off the trial when it goes over to the Senate in January. Natasha, you have a sense of this. Let's say a junior House member really wants to say something that it's, it doesn't work that way, right? It has to be all approved by by Schiff or Nadler or Pelosi uh, and and all all sort of stage managed through them. Is that is that your sense? I bet anyone who wants to speak will be able to get at least a at least two or three minutes to speak on either yeah. side. Something of yeah. this nature. 
Okay. So all in all, you think, though, it's so it starts, what, Tuesday morning, and then you see the actual vote Wednesday, and then do we right away set the, or is there now a hiatus for a couple weeks, or do we right away set the date of the trial and, and, you know, tell, tell, uh, inform John Roberts to show up, et cetera? Well, the Republicans definitely want to take the holiday break. They they want to take this up again um, once they come back um, in January. But I don't think they're in any rush to set a date. I think they're hoping that this might just kind of fizzle and, and you know, they want to keep it from gaining any more momentum. Um, so I think we can probably expect them not to move very quickly on, on setting a date. But um, they they ha- have certainly determined that they're not going to do anything over the, the holiday recess. Right. So do you think we won't even know when the when the trial is going to begin for a while? I don't know. If, I don't know when they'll announce that, but I suspect we'll hear from McConnell again. I, I, I yeah. think his statement to Sean Hannity was it was a classic McConnell thing to do. It oh, was yeah. just it was just like the Scalia position where Scalia had been dead for only a few hours when he announced that they were not going to go to fill the seat. Uh, McConnell yeah. will come out early and take a, an extreme position, a shameless position, take the heat for his caucus and then wait for kind of you know the world to catch up with this the stake he put in the ground. And I suspect we'll hear more from him before Congress leaves at the end of next week about what the trial will look like and it will be the most favorable possible set up for the president. And the question is, does he have 51 votes to enforce that? And usually he he has been able to command his caucus in that that fashion. Yeah. Although just to underscore that there could be specific, you know, there could be a few members who will certainly vote to acquit, but might get a little heartburn at at really uh, sharp dealing on his part. And he may he may think that he has to look Kind of fair or or maybe not. Obviously, he didn't he didn't care with with uh, Merrick Garland. And he just, you know, I think he has another problem here. I think to go back to what uh, McConnell said to Hannity, what he said is, I'll do whatever the White House wants, which seems like a very simple formulation, but actually is a super complicated formulation because no one really knows what the White House wants and what the White House wants changes from hour to hour, minute to minute. And I think part of the challenge here is that, you know, in the past week, we've heard variously that Trump does and doesn't want live witnesses, does and doesn't want a long trial, does and does want it done over Christmas, you know, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And so part of the problem of having a White House that is completely bereft of talent and then having every decision being made by Trump is you have an erratic person driving this process. And. Uh, you know, Patrick Malone can go up there all he wants and hang out with Republican senators, so on and so forth. But if Trump wakes up on January 4th and decides that he wants, you know, witnesses and John Roberts uh, sitting up there for weeks and whatever, like, you know, that, that's going to change the strategy. And so I think one reason why we don't know a date, one reason why we don't know the process, one reason why we don't know the procedure is because is because Trump really doesn't know what he wants. And there's no one who can speak on his behalf and make it stick. Well, what about that? So, Natasha, yeah, if if it really is Trump completely in charge and, you know, it has seemed to be in the House where they where he wouldn't permit any kind of of tempered uh, defense, then that would seem right. And so his erraticness is the party's and the country's erraticness. But isn't McConnell I mean, here's a way to put it. Do you buy 100 percent what McConnell says to Hannity? Wouldn't he? Isn't it possible that he's going to really do what he um, thinks is best for 
well, among other things, his own prospects for staying majority leader. And he'll give lip service to that, but that he definitely retains the the sort of prospect of of going his own his own way and, you know, and pushing back against Trump? Or do you really think whatever whatever you say, Don goes? No, no, uh, not definitely not the latter. I mean, I think we've already seen McConnell pour cold water on these kind of fanciful ideas by Trump that he's going to have, you know, all of these witnesses called into the Senate for interrogation and he's going to completely throw the trial back into the Democrats' face and have it completely backfire by calling people like Hunter Biden and focusing right. solely on Burisma. Um, McConnell and other senators, even Lindsey Graham actually said that he doesn't want that, that they don't want um, this to become a circus, that if anything now, McConnell is actually moving towards as I mentioned earlier, moving towards this idea that they're just he's just going to acquit Trump. It's going to be a very quick thing. They might not even call any witnesses at all, do the exact opposite, essentially, of what Trump wanted to begin with, so that they can pretty much just tell all Americans, let's, let's get past this, and there's nothing to see here. So in that sense, I think he may very well be coordinating with the White House Counsel's Office on that, because the White House Counsel's Office is not, is very rarely, I think, you know, in lockstep with exactly what the president wants in terms of procedure and how to go about things. You know, the outcome tends to be defending the president, but in terms of how it gets done, you know, it's it doesn't necessarily always go the president's way. So I think that is what McConnell is trying to do now. He's trying to send subtle messages to Trump and say, look, we're going to work with the, with the big, big boys on this and (laughs) to, you know, make sure that this doesn't have to be any more painful um, than it has to be. Similar question for, for you two, but a little more broad, you know, it was the, the sort of brazenness of the freezing out of Judge Garland. And he boasted about it. You know, he, there was zero pretense or close to zero of being fair about it. Do you think he even will care about appearing to be uh, fair, uh, or is he just will he revel, you know, in 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 a straight kind of power politics? He will absolutely not care at all if people criticize him for not being fair. I, I think uh-huh. I think the Republican Party writ large and McConnell especially has figured out over the years that they pay almost no political price for kind of you know fights over process or fights over rules or or you know doing things you know, r- rigging outcomes in a way that that are you know are, are unfair or can be perceived as unfair and. That comes through in how they uh, deal with judges. It'll come through in how they deal with this trial. It comes through in how they deal with the right to vote. It comes through on on a lot of kind of what you might call process t- type issues versus yeah. you know kind of more substantive issues. And I, I, I think that's exactly what I, I well, don't think I'd he'll go, care I'd at all. Further, and I'd say the, Ron, the model the, the model here <laughs> isn't so much what happened with Garland, but what happened with Kavanaugh. Um, because I think what the Republicans learned from Kavanaugh was if you prior to the Kavanaugh nomination, um, you know, Republicans were probably going to not only lose the House, but like have a seriously tough time in the Senate. And, and part of that was because Donald Trump walked every day and said, these guys in the Senate are morons. I mean, like he was out there publicly blasting McConnell before the Kavanaugh nomination for not doing his bidding well enough. And I think a lot of Trump's voters were out there saying, like, if Trump isn't so big on these Republican senators, why should I be? 
And Kavanaugh was a point of alignment for them. They were doing Trump's bidding in a very Trump-like way. They were jamming the guy through. They were, you know, doing whatever Trump wanted. They were aggressively defending him. And it married the Republican Senate profile with Trump. And while I agree with Natasha that definitely, you know, McConnell is going to make some decisions here based on consulting with people other than Trump, their fundamental political calculus is that with an unpopular president and the Republicans in the minority party in the country, they can only keep the Senate if they are lockstep with Trump and have his fired up base producing fired up turnout for them in 2020. And so I think, you know, they are not going to get far from um, from Trump uh, himself. uh, And and uh, and they are going to try to run a repeat of the kind of the Brett Kavanaugh outrage play that they ran in the fall of 2018. By the way, I mean, this is, you know, not a politics podcast. And I I think uh, people know that about Ron's long association with the vice president, Vice President Biden. But do you does anybody think that the, you know, the fact of of, uh, impeachment and the way it's going to play out either helps or hurts any particular candidate? This one thing that's very clear from this Ukraine incident is that Trump very much worried about Joe Biden as an opponent and wanted to do anything he could uh, to sandbag him. Uh, that said, I think whoever the Democratic nominee is, you are going to see Trump run this same playbook against them. It is now the playbook of the Republican Party, which is to try to gin up an investigation against your political opponent, um, use your allies in Congress to help amplify it. In some cases, use those allies to get the investigation started and then use Fox to kind of drive it into the media narrative every day. And I think whoever the nominee is, you're going to see some sort of investigation uh, into them, whether that's Biden or Warren or Buttigieg or whoever it is. The nominee, shit, he runs it, excuse me, he runs it against like Times Person of the Year, a 16-year-old. <laughs> I mean, change, it's a, I mean, okay, man. Okay. Uh, yeah, Bill, Bill Barr is announcing the investigation into her, I think, you know, early next week. This is the problem with brilliant, experienced, clear-eyed analysts. They, you know, they, they leave you... Um, uh, glum on a on a historic day like this, and and wondering, you know, where where I need to move my family to. L- let me just um, l- close or ask everyone for their you know opinion. Whether do they get away with it historically as well as in the short term? Do you do you see it like sort of Bush v. Gore or other outrages where it just just kind of happens and that's it? Or do you really see a tangible possibility that the national consensus comes to form when when the country recovers its sanity, that, that this was a really terrible transgression and that the Republicans were, um, you know, it was a shameful moment that they enabled it so much? Or is that just a fantasy, the last fantasy of a Democrat? No, first of all, let me say, I think I I am not uh, morose or down about this. I mean, let's start with the fundamental fact that uh, Trump did not get away with it. I mean, but for the whistleblower, but for the House Intelligence Committee, but for the media that has covered all this, uh, Trump would have gotten away with it. I mean, he was days away from having the Ukraine president go on CNN and announce the investigation he wanted. And we wouldn't have known anything other than, oh, the president of Ukraine is investigating the president's political opponent. Right. must be couldn't serious. Couldn't have unscrambled so the eggs. Over. That's right. Couldn't have unscrambled the eggs. So, I mean, let's stop and say 
without a big hurrah, the system worked like a small hurrah. The system worked. I mean, you know, the, the, the president the whistleblowers. Well, yeah. the president was yeah. on the verge of getting away of one of the great yeah. crimes in American presidential history, and it was stopped. So, you know, we should take a moment to recognize that to at least that extent, the system worked. Now, I think the second thing is he is being subjected to some form of accountability here. No, he will not be convicted. No, he will not be removed. But he will wear this mark of impeachment uh, in the history books forever. He has had to endure this process. Uh, it isn't the full-fledged uh, accountability one might hope to see, but it is an element of accountability. So uh, I think you know what, what's happened here is significant and important and has made a big difference and uh, while it will not have the kind of ending I would like to see it have, uh, it certainly is going to have some impact. Yeah, I, I agree with with Ron, and, and I think there was a there was a sense among the Democrats early on um, that the president actually wanted to be impeached, and that this would be a political, right, the rabbit right this would be right. a political win for him, and that's why they they were just kind of overthinking it and going too much into the reverse psychology of it, and actually listening to the White House's arguments that no, this is going to be very politically beneficial for for Trump, but they've come to realize I think that Trump doesn't want to be impeached at all. He quietly. You know, he talks to aides about it. He complains. He's very worried about how it's going to affect his brand. All he really cares about is his image, right? And how he's perceived and reputation and things like that, you know, in his mind, his his reputation. Um, so this is definitely a stain on his legacy. And it's it's he's going to be remembered that way. I mean, regardless of whether or not he's removed, this is not something that he wanted. And so I think once Democrats got past that point and started to think more in line of, well, how is history going to remember this moment? What are our constitutional obligations? That's when they they realized that there was nothing else that they could have done. And I think that's, that's why history is going to treat them more kindly than it will treat the president and his allies. I, for the most part, uh, agree with everything that's been said. Um, but I think for, to some extent, the historical verdict uh, on this will be decided based on whether he wins re-election or not. Right. Um, that, that, and and I, I say that largely because the thing you mentioned that, you know, when America, uh, you know, I don't know if you said when we hit the reset button or we come to this point where we can have national consensus again, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think the forces that led to, you know, Trump's election are much deeper and the problems are deeper and broader than him and that they don't show any sign of changing in the near term. And so I think this is, it's obviously forever a stain on his legacy, um, but you know, whether there's a point in the next 20 or 30 years when we can look back and have anything like, say, 65 percent of the public agreeing on on any one thing related to politics, I, I just don't know. If, I don't know if we get there or not. All right. Well, happy day or maybe not. All right. Thank you very much to Matt, Ron and Natasha. We are really fortunate at Talking Feds that the likes of them will assemble to discuss things on a monumental day like this. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast or tell a friend about us. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also hear special exclusive content for supporters at patreon.com slash talking feds. 
We've just now posted this weekend a discussion with Supreme Court expert Kate Shaw on the Second Amendment case that the court just took up. You can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or less, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, or even informed speculation, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sam Trachtenberg and Sarah Philippoum. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.